A very warm welcome to the Word Life podcast. Thank you for joining us. Today we're going back to 2015 and a track by Nick Tucker with the wonderful title 12 Things God Can't Do and Why They Should Help You Sleep at Night. These talks show us the character of our God and help us see what that looks like for us in our lives. I hope you find they expand your mind and warm your heart. Here's Nick. Gracious God, our Father in heaven, we thank you that in you we have a king who is greater than any king we could imagine. We thank you that in you uh, we have a God who is above all things. We thank you that in you we have a Father who can never fail us, who will always love us, and who, when he sets his heart and mind to save, cannot be thwarted. We pray that now as we consider you together, you will give us reverent and obedient hearts and keen minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so yesterday we began talking about some of the things that God can't do in the context that God is not like us. God is not like anything in the creation. He is our creator and cannot be compared with anything or anyone. And so we said uh, that our calling is to let God be God. God cannot learn. God cannot be surprised. We cannot catch him out and we cannot hide from him. But he always sees, always cares, always knows. Now, um, if you have your handout from yesterday with you, uh, it'll be helpful if you could just have that uh, in front of you as we start. I hope you've picked up a a fresh one on your way in. But... um, We have talked about God not being surprised, and we looked at Genesis 50.20 and uh, Acts 2.23 briefly, and we talked about how um, God puts together his foreknowledge and even his planning of our actions with the fact that we're responsible. Uh, And so uh, you can't just shrug off responsibility for your life on the basis, well, God knew it would be like this, or God's in control of it. Uh, No, he still holds us responsible, but he tells us uh, that our lives are in his hands and that he knows everything about them. Just an interesting little uh, tidbit for you as as we kind of begin and as we recap. Uh, A guy in the States called Steve Roy did his PhD research on uh, texts in the Bible that speak about God's foreknowledge and about God speaking of the things that he will do through people uh, or to people or in nature in, in the future and that kind of thing. And the bits of the Bible that seem to maybe raise questions about God's foreknowledge or would seem to suggest that it, it, can't, it can't be quite the way it seems from those texts. Now, what um, Steve Roy discovered was that there are, if you add them all up, about 4,800 texts in the Bible, 4,800 verses in scripture that speak about things that God will do in the future, either through nature or through human individuals or through nations, that kind of thing, 4,800. There are 105 possible bits of counter evidence, things that you might say, you know, that raises questions about what what you're saying about foreknowledge. So, the weight of scriptural evidence is massively in favour of this sort of picture of God's knowledge that we've been starting to build up. Now, one of the things that that then leads us on to saying, uh, and one of the things that scripture says explicitly in line with that is, if there is no new information for God, 
If he can't learn, one of the things that means is that God does not change his mind. God doesn't uh, think the better of things because there is nothing, there's no new information for him to change his mind. And it's based on this idea that God is not like the creature. So if you turn to um, 1 Samuel chapter 15, this is one of those interesting verses because, one of those interesting passages rather, because it's actually one of the passages that seems to teach that God does change his mind. So if you look with me um, at verse 10, I'll just read to you from the ESV, uh, but um, you, if you've got the King James, uh, it, it, it seems to speak of God repenting. Uh, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And you think, well, it looks here as though God's changing his mind. He made Saul king, he's now changed his mind, he doesn't want Saul to be king. You know, he, he regrets, he's been surprised, he's been, he's been befuddled or confused. Uh, so God sends Samuel to confront Saul and to say to Saul, uh, God doesn't want you to be king anymore. Uh, and um, Saul weeps bitterly and begs Samuel to um, get God to change his mind. Uh, and uh, what Samuel says is really striking. Verse 29. The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. In the NIV it says, he will not change his mind, but he is not a human being. He will not change his mind. God's not like you, says Samuel. You, Saul, you started off following God. You thought you were small, uh, and God said, I'll make you king, and, and you trusted him, but you've turned away from following him. And so God has rejected you as king. You, Saul, you've changed your mind. You're fickle. But God is not like a human being. He doesn't change his mind. So how do you put that together with what Samuel uh, has said just before? God, you know, God has said, I repent of making Saul king. I regret it. File that away as a question for tomorrow. <laughs> because we are going to come to it, but I don't want to give you the same answer twice. That would just be dull, wouldn't it? Um, but see how those two things are put together in the same passage. So you can't possibly come away from uh, 1 Samuel 15 thinking, yeah, God changes his mind. Because Samuel explicitly states it on the basis of who God is. He is not a man. He is who he is. He is not like you. He doesn't change his mind. Now, for Saul, that's disastrous, isn't it? There's no way back for him. God says, you're not going to be king anymore. And Saul says, I want to be king. And Samuel says, no, God's not going to change his mind. He's not like you. There's no new information for him. He won't repent. You're rejected. But what is the consequence for us of God not changing his mind? Well, again, in Numbers 23, we see that... Um, God doesn't change his mind about his people. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. When he speaks, he acts. He always fulfills what he, what he says he will do. Now take yourself back to the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. 
Through Genesis 1 and 2, it's clear that in creating, God speaks and it happens. God says, let there be light. What happens? There is light. God says, let the waters be gathered up into one place. You know, let the, let the dry ground be separated from the sea. And that's what happens. Whenever God speaks, it happens. God's word is full of power and it never fails. And you get to Genesis 2.17. And God says to Adam, you can eat from any tree in the garden except for that one in the middle of the garden. If you eat from that tree, you will surely die. You get to the end of Genesis 2, and there is one word of God that is unfulfilled. One promise that hasn't been kept. Why not? Because the condition hasn't been met. No one's eaten from the tree, so they haven't died. And along comes Satan and says, you won't die. God's word isn't true. And importantly, it's not effective. God won't keep his promise. Genesis 2.17 doesn't really apply to you. It doesn't really count. Of course, he doesn't say anything about Genesis 2.17 because it hadn't been written down, but you understand the point. God's word is not powerful. It is not true. That's the challenge in Genesis 2.17. That's the lie we carry around in ourselves when we sin. We say God's word doesn't apply to me, it's not real, he won't keep it. You know, it's it's a breakable word. And so when God says, I'm not a man, that I should change my mind, when I I speak, I act, when I promise, I fulfill, that challenges us at the root of our sinfulness where we think God's word is changeable. We think we can just choose which bits to believe and which bits to reject. But it comes to us in another more wonderful and more glorious way. Because when God makes a promise to you as a person, he will not fail to keep it. And so God makes a promise in Psalm 110 that points forward to the Lord Jesus The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Uh, And it's like a theme text for the book of Hebrews almost. How are you to understand the ministry of Jesus? Well, it is based on a promise of God. And as we will see on Wednesday morning, that is a promise that God cannot break. Not just that he will not break, but that he cannot break because God cannot lie. So when God makes a promise about the Lord Jesus and about anyone who has faith in the Lord Jesus, he cannot and will not change his mind. So when God calls you to himself in his son, when he gives you faith in Jesus and you trust him with your life, he will not change his mind. Now, for some of you this morning, that is the thing that you need to hear from God above everything else. God won't change his mind about you. You will not surprise him with your failures. You have not surprised him with your failures. So that Paul can say in Romans 8, I'm certain that neither the past or the future can separate us from the love of God in Jesus Christ. Why should you be able to sleep at night 
knowing what a feeble and changeable person you are because God has made promises to you in Jesus Christ and he does not change his mind. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't it? You are more secure than you could ever have thought because God does not change his mind. He does not make promises and then think better of it. What a thing that is. God is better than you have ever imagined. But now think about the Lord Jesus. In very nature, God. And yet one of the things that the New Testament tells us about our Lord and Savior is that he learned things. So think about Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Or Luke 2:40. Again, talking about Jesus, the child grew and became strong. He was filled with wisdom and the grace of God was on him. Now what's so striking about Luke 2:40 is that it's almost a complete parallel to Luke 1:80 about John the Baptist. Or John the Baptizer, if you want to be non-denominational. The child grew and became strong in spirit and lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. Do you see the parallel? The unchangeable, perfectly knowing God entered into normal human experience. In Jesus, God learned. He took on that experience of not knowing everything and growing up. In that sense, in Jesus, God knows what it's like to be you, or to be like you, at least. And so in Hebrews 5, some though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. Just notice that again. What does Jesus become? He becomes the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. The salvation that is yours in him is permanent, perfect. Why? Because he learned obedience in what he suffered. His human experience is real. This unimaginably great God, without beginning, has a birthday. This unimaginably wise God went to school. This unimaginably perfect God suffered. We'll talk about that more tomorrow. But just for a moment, sit and let that sit on you. We've been talking about how out of your imagination God is, how far beyond anything you could imagine he is. The lengths he went to to reach you are amazing. Because a God this great 
showed himself humble in reaching out to you. We'll talk more about that. But for now, we're going to need to move on to the, to the, next, to the next handout uh, and think about uh, this morning's discrete topic, which is the God who can't be seen and who can't bear to look. So once you've found this morning's handout, perhaps you'd turn to 1 Timothy and chapter 1. As we think about the fact that God cannot be seen, that God is invisible, I don't know if you've ever thought about that as one of kind of the things that makes God great. He cannot be seen. Why is that such an amazing thing? Well, let's think about it together. Now, if you look at... um, 1 Timothy. I'm going to get you just to do a bit of work in a second, looking at um, chapter 1 and chapter 6. But um, if you look at verses 12 through 17, what you see is that Paul is, um, in putting right what's been going wrong in the church in Ephesus, and in putting the gospel back uh, at the centre of that church, uh, what he does is he actually gives his own testimony and talks about how... um, even though he had done terrible things in his life, God called him uh, to himself uh, for salvation to demonstrate just how far his grace extends. Uh, So that he can say in verse 15, and this is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And Paul is saying, if he can save me, he can save you because I'm the worst. I'm number one sinner. And that is why he came into the world. He didn't come to change, primarily to change politics or anything else. He came to save. And he didn't come to save good people. He came to save sinners. And so Paul says, I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he bursts into praise. Now to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He is caught up in praise to his maker and his saviour. And it's one of the striking things about the pastoral epistles that he talks about God our saviour and Jesus Christ our hope. He, he looks to God the Father as his saviour. It's, it's, it's not that Jesus saves you from the Father, but that, that God as Trinity saves. He says, God is our saviour. I want to praise this God. How does he praise him? He's eternal. He's immortal. He's invisible. Interesting choice of three things. Now, why don't you have a look at um, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and then at chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. Do I mean 15 and 16? I, I mean verse 17 of chapter 1. 
uh, and um, just see how they parallel each other. Uh, see what similarities you can spot, and maybe look in some of the surrounding verses as well, if that's an easy job for you. And then ask yourself this question, why is it that, that invisibility, why is it that invisibility is so high on Paul's praise list? that when he wants to put praise at the beginning and the end of this letter to Timothy, he talks about God being invisible. Why don't you turn in in twos and threes, just like we did yesterday, uh, and uh, have a chat about those two questions. Okay, I'm going to give you another 30 seconds. Wow, that was more effective than saying, please stop talking now. That's great. Um, <clears throat> so I'm not going to get feedback from you now. I hope, I hope you, you sort of spotted the key things. Uh, he stresses at the beginning and the end of the letter, it, this is the structure of 1 Timothy. It begins and ends with the God who is immortal, invisible, unique, And you may have spotted this if you have really keen eyes uh, in verse 11 of chapter 1 and and verse 15 of chapter 6. Paul also talks about him as the blessed God, the God who is forever blessed. Now, that's a a scriptural theme we're going to pick up tomorrow morning as we think about uh, things that God can't do. But he is by his nature blessed. Translated in the uh, older versions, the older English versions of the Bible as happy. Immortal, invisible, unique. He is the only God. Why is invisibility so high up his praise list? Well, let's have a think about it as we uh, look at some other texts from the New Testament. But it's connected, isn't it, to those two ideas that he is immortal and that he is unique, he is the only God. No one is to be worshipped alongside him or in place of him. He is unique, there's no one like him. Undying, unseeable. Now, um, as you flip through uh, the New Testament, you'll see that time and again, God is referred to as invisible. So what is the wonder of the incarnation of the Lord Jesus? Well, part of it is that he is the image of the invisible God. Only in Jesus do you see God. So that Thomas can say to him, show us the Father, that will be enough for us. You think, yeah, that'll be enough, will it? It's great for me, like a Big Mac's enough. You want to see the Father, that's not much to ask. And Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But in John 1.18, he says, no one has ever seen God except for me. But in Jesus, you see him. In Hebrews 11.27, there's this idea that Moses actually trusts God in such a way that it's as though he's seen the one who is invisible. No one can see God, but Moses having seen something of his glory, is not afraid of anything else. God is unique, more powerful than any human king. He's invisible. 
And so John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. And so on your handouts, I've put this quote from Oregon, uh, which is uh, his comment on Oregon as a sort of third century uh, theologian in Alexandria in Egypt. He's kind of the father of uh, systematic theology in many ways. Uh, and um, his comment on, on this from, from, from John 1 is, is very striking. No one's at any time seen God, clearly declaring to all who are able to understand that there is no nature to which God is visible. Not as if he were indeed visible by nature and merely escaped or baffled the view of a frailer creature, but because he is by nature impossible to be seen. Now, Oregon really, I think, at that point is drawing on things like Colossians 1 and 1 Timothy 1 and 1 Timothy 6, where God is explicitly described as invisible. Jesus says no one has ever seen God. Oregon is saying that is because God is unseeable. Why? Well, Stephen Charnock, uh, a Reformation-era English writer who wrote a a book on, uh, uh, an enormous book, actually, on on, uh, God uh, and uh, what he's like, Uh, And at the beginning of it, he sort of says, look, I'm really sorry, this would have been much longer and much better if I'd had any books with me, because he was in prison, and he didn't have his library, so he just wrote it out of his memory, um, and it's uh, that thick. Uh, Goodness me, the things he could accomplish when he didn't have Twitter and telly, uh, it's really, it's it's amazing. But Stephen Charnock's comment on... um, uh, on all this stuff is this. If he had a body but hid it from our eyes, he might be said not to be seen, but he could not be said to be invisible. If he is invisible, he is also spiritual. So it's not that God has got a body that he's hiding, but actually God is not seeable in his nature actually there's nothing to see because the kind of being that God is is different from you you can't be invisible now I know there are certain social situations in which you feel invisible and there are other social situations in you wish you were invisible but you are an embodied creature you have a body you can be seen. You, you obstruct light. I obstruct more light than many of you, but you obstruct light. And it bounces off you. People can see you. Not so God. His being is different. Uh, and there are actually a, a whole bunch of things that go together with God's invisibility uh, in the Bible, either by implication or by being put together. And... Um, I was going to get you to talk about them, but actually I think well, I, w- I won't do that. Uh, so let's, um, uh, let's just think about together what things tend to go with God being invisible in Scripture. In the Reformed Confessions, in, um, after the Reformation, um, Protestant Christians realised they needed uh, sort of definitions of faith, and um, uh, two of the sort of most prominent ones, one quite early, the Belgic Confession, which you have up on the screen there, uh, and um, another one, the Westminster Confession, dwell at some length on the nature of God himself. And um, 
in this one, the Belgic Confession, which is sort of, um, you know, the Netherlands kind of region it, it, it originates from. I, I won't do the accent. Uh, we all believe... <laughs> go on, if you ask nicely. No, I won't. Uh, <laughs> We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God. Eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. So some of those are things we picked up yesterday, talking about how God says, I am who I am. He is the overflowing source of all good things. Uh, Everything comes from him. He's unchangeable. Uh, But uh, these things that go with God being invisible, invisible... this idea of him being spiritual, incomprehensible, infinite. And and sometimes uh, immortality, as we saw uh, in 1 Timothy 6, is put together with that. So again, you can see uh, the same things uh, there in the Westminster Confession. And some of these words we'll explain uh, as we go along. But it's it's, it's almost as though God's invisibility is like one aspect of this kind of uh, what we might call a nexus of attributes. That's a whole bunch of things that basically are kind of a way of trying to describe the same sort of thing, but using different ideas because we don't really have concepts. You know, you've never met an invisible being, have you, other than God? So how do you you make sense of, of what it means? So... Here, here are those four. Um, immortality will come to you tomorrow. Okay, so four things. Spirituality, immensity, infinity, and ubiquity. I'll explain what they mean. Uh, spirituality, to start with. That, that may be uh, an, an easier one. Um, now, spirituality, when it comes to God, doesn't, doesn't mean you know, the way that God prays or anything like that. It's supposed to describe his, his being. Think about John 4.24. Uh, Jesus meets the woman at the well and they have this um, conversation uh, about worship. And she says, well, you Jews say you have to worship in Jerusalem, but you know, our ancestors worship on this mountain. What do you say? And Jesus says, God is spirit. And his worshippers must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, by definition in the Bible, a spirit does not have a body. Uh, and you can see this in the resurrection narratives when he eats uh, fish and the disciples turn to each other and say, you know, he, he, what's going on? And Jesus says, look, I, I, I have flesh and bones. And you know, a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones. They're looking at each other and saying, he's a ghost. He's a spirit, a pneuma, a spirit. And Jesus says, you know that a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see I have. A spirit is a being without a body. And God is a spiritual being. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have hands and feet. He's not like you. He doesn't need a body to get things done. He speaks and invents light. He speaks and the universe comes into being. He doesn't need a body to achieve things. His power is so much greater than that. Now, that goes together with the next of the things that the Reformed uh, Confessions want to talk about, which is the idea that God is immense. Now, you might be used to thinking, you know, such and such a rugby player or basketballer or, you know, England goalkeeper is immense or that an elephant is immense. But actually, that's not really what immense means. It doesn't just mean really, really, really big. It literally means unbounded, unbounded. 
not having edges. And so immensity and infinity go together was the idea that you cannot travel through God and get to the edge. And in that sense, there's no center. But everything is the center. Everywhere is the center of him. His presence... Sorry, this is is the most mind-bending it's going to get. (laughs) He said quickly, realizing that, you know, it's getting out of hand. Um, Maybe not that quickly. All right. But Job 11 tells us that you cannot get to the edges of God. He's higher than the heavens. He's deeper than the depths. He's infinite. He's immense. There are no edges. You can't travel through God and get past him or get to the edge of him. The Truman Show is not true. If you take wings and, 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 and fly on the wings of the dawn, you'll never escape him. He's everywhere. But the thing about God being spiritual and immense and infinite, put all those things together, which are ways of trying to describe what it is for God to not be like us, not to have a body, not to be limited in the way that we are. And you say, God is present everywhere. David says that in Psalm 139, I can't flee from your presence. Wherever I go, your right hand will hold me fast. Now, he's not talking about God having a right hand, is he? He's talking about God's power and being able to sustain him and, and lead him and guide him wherever he goes. He cannot escape the presence of God. Because God doesn't take up space. And God doesn't have limits or boundaries or edges. Now, the really exciting thing about that is, no matter where you go in the universe, you, de- you never get an inch further away from God. And you're not traveling through a God who just fills the universe, but he does fill it, but everywhere is the center. You don't move from near the center of God to further away because that's not the kind of being that he is. His presence in his universe is perfect at every moment in space and in time. And think about that in terms of God's knowledge. What, means is, what this means is that you are never an inch away from the center of who God is and from his attention. God is not distracted by many things like Martha. He is perfectly present to every person, to every place, to every moment in the history of his creation. Because he is the kind of being who can be all those things. Because, I will say it again, and that's both a prediction and an apology, he is not like us. So when Paul says God is immortal and invisible, he is saying, this God is more marvelous and more wonderful than anything you have experienced or seen. You cannot see God because of his nature. 
because he is spirit. So again, stop thinking. I imagine that you're like me and you try to think about things in terms of your own experience and your own life and, and so everything is kind of analogous to, to, to ourselves. So we think about God as a bigger version of ourselves. Like a human being, just much bigger. And Paul is saying, he's not, he's not like you at all. He's not like a bigger version of you. Doesn't have edges, you can't see him. He's, he's, he's too magnificent for you to see. There is no way you can see God because he's not part of the universe. He's beyond it. He's another dimension of existence. More wonderful, more perfect than anything you've ever conceived of. So, God is invisible because of his nature. He is a spirit. He's unbounded. He's infinite. You can't see him. And, and if he was physical, you wouldn't be able to see him anyway, any more than that you can see... No. It's like being an ant... You know, if you imagine you were an ant on a blue whale, and you try and... Someone says, can you describe to me what a blue whale looks like? Well, no, because the blue whale is just so massive. I don't, I don't have enough peripheral vision. But it's so much more than that. You can't see God by his nature, not just because he's so big, but because he's so different. But it's not just God's nature as spiritual that means we can't see him in Scripture. He's invisible for another reason as well. And um, at this point, I will split you into groups again. And I'd like you to look at 1 Timothy 6, verses 15 and 16, Exodus 33, verses 20 to 33, and Isaiah chapter 6, uh, just the first few verses of Isaiah 6. Okay? Uh, why can't we see God according to those verses? Why can't you see God? Just turn in your groups again, flick through those passages, maybe split the passages up between you, um, and feedback to each other. All right, that'll do. So, one word, just someone yell it. Why can't we see God? Second reason, why not? Holy. We agree. (laughs) God is so searingly holy that to look on him is to be extinguished. is to die. There are no descriptions of what God looks like in the Bible. Those who have an encounter with the glory of God talk about it in such vague terms that you wonder what they really saw. Moses sees the sort of, what Don Carson calls the sort of trailing rear edge of the glory of God as it recedes into the distance. God says, I'll show you my glory, but I won't show you my face. For you cannot look on me and live. Isaiah sees the Lord seated up on high somewhere, you know, with such glory that the train of his robe fills the temple. And he says, even the the heavenly creatures, these sinless beings, 
that are in his presence, they have plenty of wings. Because with one set of wings, they have six wings. Two for flying, two to cover their eyes, and two to cover their shame, their feet. Even these perfect heavenly beings that, that worship in the presence of God eternally, even they must shield themselves from the glory of the Holy One. So in 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, he dwells in unapproachable light. Now, where I live, we didn't get a solar eclipse. I mean, I guess we probably did, but no one knows because uh, it was really cloudy. Um, I know that if you lived in, in you know, some more sort of blessed parts of the country further north than Watford, uh, you probably did see some kind of eclipse but you know you know that you have to you can't look straight at it you know the glory of the sun is such that um, you know look at it and it will burn your retina I heard people complaining that they'd they'd been wearing you know glasses special glasses to look at the eclipse they'd looked at the eclipse and then the next day they found they were sunburnt because the glory of the sun is too much for your eyes to cope with But the glory of the Holy One is on another level. And so there's a sense in which hiding his glory from us is an act of mercy on behalf of God. Because to look on him is to be completely undone. Because his holiness will burn right through you. And that brings us to another aspect of sight where God has an inability. Now, for those of you who don't like visual puns, look away, um, because that is a visual pun that literally in and of itself says, can't bear to look. (laughs) Hashtag true facts. But God cannot bear to look on evil. So we can't look at him because he is too bright, too glorious, too holy. It would destroy us. But actually there is something about evil. Habakkuk 1.13, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Which is something we'll come back to again tomorrow and probably on Wednesday. But actually God's holiness is such that it gives him another inability and that is the inability to tolerate evil. If we'd had time to talk about it in Psalm 139, the vision of God's glory that David describes in Psalm 139, you know, I can't flee from you, this knowledge is too wonderful to me, I can't count your thoughts, they're like the sand on the seashore. The response is that he suddenly then switches to saying, I wish you would destroy the wicked. Do I not hate those who hate you? Now, I think at that point, what David is doing is not sort of calling us to to holy war or anything like that. He's saying, you know, when I see things from God's point of view, I realize that anything set up against him is just unutterably disgusting and hateful. That's how God sees the world. 
His eyes are too pure to look on evil. He cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Now, if your God isn't like that, then you don't know the God of the Bible. If you think that God is simply an indulgent grandfather who says, oh, well, they're only human, you don't understand him, you don't know him. Not the way he wants you to know him. Because his holiness is such that he cannot tolerate evil, he cannot overlook it, he can't even bear to see it. And as we approach Good Friday, surely we recognise that this was such a terrible thing that it required the most extreme of solutions in sending and giving up his only son. That was the only way. Do you not think that if God could have dealt with sin in some other way, he would? Some other way than the death of his own son? God cannot tolerate wrongdoing. And and so there's a group of Christians apparently in Ephesus in uh, 1 John who are going around saying, you know, la, 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 we'll live as we like. God doesn't care. And John says, this is the message we heard from him, from Jesus, and declare to you, God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Light, searing, pure, moral holiness. There is not even a a tinge of darkness in him. So if we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. If you think that a holy God wants his people to be unholy, you've missed a step. And this, God's attitude to evil, this is the big quandary at the heart of the scriptures from Genesis 3 onwards. God makes this promise, Genesis 2.17, on the day you eat of it, you will die. And in Genesis 3, sin comes into the creation through Adam. And speaking reverently, it's as though God is faced with the ultimate dilemma. He's made humanity in his image for his glory. And they must be destroyed. And so the great, the extremely great fourth century theologian, Athanasius of Alexandria, talking about the wonder of the incarnation of Jesus, says... God was faced with the prospect of of Satan winning. Satan sought to undo God's work, to undo God's glory, to rob him of his glory by robbing him of the human beings he had made in his own image, by leading them into sin. And so Athanasius says, could it it be that God would, would destroy his image bearers and so lose the glory that he had intended for himself? But what's the alternative? Can God just forgive? 
Well, Athanasius says no, then he'd be making himself like the serpent. He would be denying the truth of his own word. He'd be saying, my word is not truthful, it is not effective. No, you won't die. From Genesis 3 onwards, we are faced with this quandary. How can a holy God live with an unholy people? Live with a sinful people? The Bible starts with righteous people in a garden in the presence of God. And it ends with righteous people in a garden city in the presence of God. But then in Genesis 3, you have people hiding from the presence of God. And in Revelation 6, verses 15 and 16, you have the kings and the rulers of the earth hiding in caves, saying to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the presence of the living God. Hide us from the face of the Lamb. Immediately either side. It's like the Bible is one big chiasm. Does that make sense? You know, it's, a, it's, it, it's structured so that at the very end you have righteous people in the garden with God and then just before and just after, like the brackets coming inwards, you have people hiding from the presence of God, sinful people hiding from the presence of God. How can God live with sinful people? How can a holy God tolerate their presence I wonder, what do you think the book of Exodus is about? I wonder what you think the book of Exodus is about. Is it about God rescuing his people from Egypt? Yes, but it's about more than that, isn't it? The people are out of Egypt fairly early on. You know, if you're writing a blockbuster novel, okay, you don't sort of round off the plot in the first ten chapters. At least... You know, not in anyone, not if you want to write a second blockbuster novel. (laughs) Chapter 19, verse 12. No, verse 4. Actually, why, why not turn to Exodus 19? We've just about got time. What is the book of Exodus about? What is God actually doing? This is what God says to Moses. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Freedom from slavery is not the whole of what Exodus is about, is it? It's about people being set free from slavery to Pharaoh and brought to himself being brought to God and into the presence of God. And right from the start, the the demands Moses is to present to Pharaoh are, let us go into the desert so that we may worship. That is what God wants. He wants people back in his presence. He wants wants worshippers. And so God's glory appears on the top of the mountain in in, in Exodus chapter 19 and he's going to give uh, his covenant to Moses. Uh, And so he says, verse 12, look, make sure no one even touches the base of this mountain. 
even an animal. If an animal touches the base of the mountain, it is to be stoned to death. You're not to touch the animal, you have to throw things at it. Because I am so holy and you cannot be in my presence. And so you get halfway through the book of of Exodus and you're thinking God's brought a people to himself but they can't actually be near him. Now, I mean, if you've ever seen a mountain, I mean, if you've never left the UK, um, unless you're from uh, unless you're from Scotland, um, you know, you've never really seen a mountain. But mountains are big. This don't say this isn't informative stuff, okay? <laughs> mountains are big. You may not even touch the base of the mountain. That's. God's people can't be in his presence. So what is the climax of the book of Exodus? Well, turn with me to chapter 40. And verse 34. Much of the second half of Exodus is taken up with instructions on how to build a tabernacle, how to build this special tent so that God's presence can be with his people, in the midst of his people. Chapter 40, verse 34. The climax of the book. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now God's glory can dwell at the heart of his people. Verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting, because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And so the climax of the book of Exodus is God present with his people, and yet they're still separated off from him. And right from this point, right through the history of the people, there is this special place, the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle and then in the temple, that is screened off from the people, where God's presence is is seen in a particular way. And it's separated off from the people by a great curtain, as thick as a man's hand. And into that curtain are woven two heavenly creatures the cherubim, and they speak to you of the guards that God put at the entrance to the Garden of Eden to keep people out in Genesis 3. And so they bar the way, symbolically they continue to bar the way to the presence of God. God shows that he wants to live with his people and yet you, you can't come too close. Because he is searingly holy. And so those, that great curtain in the temple spoke both of God's willingness to be with his people but of their need to be shielded from him. That's what the tabernacle is. What the temple is. God living with his people and yet maintaining safe distance. Now think about Jesus. Think about John 1, verse 14. The word became flesh. God himself became a human being. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us, literally pitched his tents among us or tabernacled among us. In Jesus, 
the Holy God came to dwell with us as one of us. And at the end of his life, what happens? Those cherubim on that curtain in the temple, that thick curtain protecting humanity from the glory of God, those creatures who said this far and no further, the curtain is ripped in two from top to bottom. God has done it and the cherubim are no longer blocking the way. In coming and living and then in his death as a human, as a man, Jesus opens up the way into the presence of God himself. He is the answer to the question. The infinite God becoming finite. The holy God dwelling as a man with sinful people is the answer to the great quandary at the heart of the Bible. The answer is in God becoming able to do things that he couldn't otherwise do. The immense God being made small. And again, Athanasius, looking at the cross, in his argument about the incarnation of Jesus, he says, this is how God kept the promise of Genesis 2.17. A man had to die. That sentence had to be carried out. How? It had to be a man. It was this man, Jesus. And that is one of the reasons that Paul structures 1 Timothy the way that he does. Let's just go back there as we finish. At either end, we've seen Paul says God is immortal, he's invisible beginning and end of the letter. And in the very middle, at the very hinge of the letter, at the very focal point, when he says, this is what this letter is about. Verse 14 of chapter three, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So the church has gone pieces in Ephesus and Paul is saying this is how to put it back together this is how the church should live and so he focuses in verse 16 great indeed we confess is the mystery of godliness this is the very middle of the letter the very the heart of the whole thing and what does he say the invisible God has appeared He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. The mystery 
at the heart of how it is that God would deal with people like you and me is focused on the fact that in Jesus, the most unbelievable thing has happened. The invisible has become visible. He was manifested in the flesh. Every Christmas we celebrate it. And yet I wonder if it's ever really knocked you as far sideways as it ought to. God himself was seen in our world. Why? Chapter one, verse 15, he came into the world to save sinners. Things that God can't do, he can't be seen and he can't bear to look on evil. And yet, in Jesus, he has made himself visible. So that in Hebrews chapter one, verse one, he can say, look, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets in many and various ways in the past. But now, he has spoken to us through a son by whom he made the universe. God is not hidden any longer. And God can't bear to look on evil. But in becoming a human being, the Son of God has dealt with that problem once and for all. And the way into the presence of God is no longer barred, but is open to anyone who will put their trust in him. In Jesus, you see the magnificence of God and his kindness and humility side by side. And the great apostle can say, this is a mystery. It's a mystery in the sense that it's something that's been made known, but it's a mystery in the sense that you will never fathom the depths of this. You will praise God for it for eternity and never get to the bottom of it. Because the love of God is beyond anything you can imagine. Right, I feel like I say beyond anything you can imagine quite a lot, but there's a reason. <laughs> because God is just so much better than you ever thought. This talk was recorded at Word Alive 2015. Word Alive is here to serve the church in reaching the world. Our desire is to resource individuals and churches and empower them in their mission to local communities in the wider world. For further information and to hear more talks from this and previous events, please visit our website at wordaliveevent.org.